Well, happy winter and good morning, everyone. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the Gospel of Matthew's, uh, Matthew, that is, as we begin our new series, Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew chapter 1. I think most of us here would agree that we live in a, in a very hate-filled world. Would you agree with that? And in many ways, leading the way are our politicians. Our current president is under duress right now. He faces the real possibility of impeachment, but he's not the first one to face that. Other presidents have faced that. And even in our own generation, uh, when I was a much younger individual, I was in high school, when Richard Nixon was facing the surety of impeachment, and uh, our president at the time resigned, knowing that the writing was on the wall. Upon his resignation, he was basically persona non grata wherever he went. He was shamed. He was socially exiled uh, for really most of his life, though he made a comeback toward the end of his life, not as, you know, politically speaking, but four years after he resigned, Hubert H. Humphrey, anybody remember him? He died. He was the famous politician from Minnesota uh, who Nixon defeated to get into the White House in 1968. Humphrey was dying, and he was making amends with lots of his enemies, and he called Richard Nixon he said, I'm dying, but I'd like you to come to my funeral, state funeral at the Capitol Rotunda. And uh, sure enough, Nixon came to Humphrey's funeral. But when he walked in, no one spoke to him. No reporter addressed him. No one showed him to his special seat that was there for him. No one regaled him in any way. In fact, he and his wife, Pat, stood off in the corner of the rotunda, no one speaking to them. Just then, the president at the time was President Jimmy Carter. He came in, and he was royally escorted right to the seat he was supposed to be at. And just before he sat down, he noticed Richard Nixon and his wife, Pat, standing in the corner by themselves. And he walked all the way over, embraced President Nixon, and said, Welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home, and escorted him back to his privileged seat. What an act of mercy and grace. When the Lord Jesus Christ came, it was a homecoming of sorts. After all, he made the world, amen? But he wasn't welcomed. In fact, John tells us he was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people would not receive him. That's pretty sad. There weren't many greeting him. I think that's the reason why when he did finally come, God dispatched a whole entourage of angels to say, glory to God in the highest. Somebody had to cheer him on. Now, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus is an abbreviated one compared to Luke's more popular one, but it's worth looking into, and I want you to pay attention to chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. That's our text this morning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Some of you are probably saying, how can you be engaged and have to get a divorce? Divorce that was so binding in the first century that you, it took a writ of divorcement to break it up, even before the consummation of it. Verse 20, but as he considered, the Greek word means to mull, to churn in your mind. It's the, it's the idea of having something on your head when you go to bed, you can't fall asleep. That's the idea here. And that's probably when the vision came. But as he mulled, churned over these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived, literally begotten in her, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, say it, everyone, Jesus. For, or literally because, he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill What the Lord has spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, say it, God, God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Every Thursday morning around here on two different hours, various staff meet together to pray. We pray for people, and specifically for people who still need to be saved. Some of you may well be on those lists. We have our own personal list of people we're working with, but we pray for people, for people to be saved. So it was a bit surprising to me just the other day when when, uh, someone had mentioned, I want you to pray for our empty house next door. I thought, What? (laughs) I'm praying for an empty house? Yeah, because we don't know who's going to be moving in there. Ah, then it made sense. And I was reminded of Eugene Peterson's famous rendering of John chapter 1, verse 14, where he writes, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, which is what Jesus did, right? You know, it's one thing for Jesus to move into your neighborhood, It's another thing for him to move into your home, into your heart's home. You got room? Would you welcome him? Would you welcome him? I want to give you this morning from this passage three reasons to welcome Jesus into your home this Christmas. And I'm thinking about your heart, really. Here's the first one, because he came not to exclude you, but to include you. Did you see in verse 18, it says, there's a contrast set up for you. You can almost overlook it. It says the birth of Jesus was, you see this, in this way. Do you see that? In this way. He's contrasting it with the first 17 verses, which I'll I'll come back to in a moment. The greatest sign of a healthy church is ongoing new births. Would you agree with that? Now, ongoing physical births say something of the health of a church as well. And we nearly put the two of them together just a couple of weeks ago. 
Seriously, there's a couple that we led to Christ. They've become very dear to us. We, they both placed their faith in Jesus. They've both been born again just in the last uh, several weeks. And, and so with the baptism coming up just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were scheduling them to get baptized. And he wanted to get baptized. He was urging his wife to get baptized, except that there was only one problem. The baptism date was just four days before her due date. And for some reason, she was a little reluctant to get baptized. I don't know what the deal was. She said to me, she said, she said Pastor, you might, ba- you might baptize me and come up with a baby. I said, whoa, now that would go viral. <laughs> that would get somebody's attention. When the scripture says in this way, it's pointing to a contrast in the first 17 verses. And I'm not going to read those first 17 verses because it's basically a a genealogy or a genealogy, however you want to pronounce the the word, of Jesus. And it's a lot of words that you have to say five times just to get, just uh, to uh, pronounce correctly. But in this list, in this genealogy is, is an amazing list of characters and including, including the inclusion, the inclusion of not one, not two, but four women. And in Bible times, it was unthinkable to put a woman in the genealogy. And they're not just four women. They're four women of, of, of not good, their reputations were not good. There is Tamar, she's mentioned in verse 3. She actually played the role of a prostitute. And then there's Rahab, mentioned a few verses later, verse 5. She actually was a prostitute. And then there's Ruth. Now, we, we've come to, Bible students have come to affectionately love Ruth. But do you know that the clan that Ruth came from was, they were Moabites. The Moabites came through an incestuous relationship. Yuck. And then there's Bathsheba. She's alluded to in verse 6 as the wife of Uriah. So it's almost like God sticks it to David a little bit here. She committed adultery with David. She's in there, all in Jesus' genealogy. And I have to tell you, the purpose of the genealogy, which was to establish Jesus as the one who was qualified to be the Messiah, and the inclusion of so many questionable, and there are others besides the women, questionable, ungodly, and immoral characters, they're all in Jesus' genealogy. I love this. It's one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story. It gives me great joy, and it should give some of you great hope. Listen carefully. God doesn't sweep your sweep your past under the rug. He sweeps your sins under his blood. That's what he does. Not your history. So many of us want to run away from our history. God never tells you to do that. Let's be honest. There are things about your past and mine that we just as soon, you know, leave there. Amen? And I'm actually writing a book with the intention of changing that, that bad thinking. It's bad thinking to think that just because you've been forgiven of a sin or sins, that you should never talk about that again. That's why you have the Bible's replete with testimonies. 
That's why David records his own testimony in Psalm 51. And in that testimony, he tells us, God, God basically said, hand this over to the choir for a song to sing. David, I've forgiven you of the culpability of your sin. You don't have to live in the guilt of it anymore, but I'm not going to erase its history. There's only one person who came and went without sin, without regret, without screw-ups, without mess-ups, and without stuff he'd rather have hidden from the public eye, and that is Emmanuel, God with us. Not you, no matter how squeegee clean you think your life is. Hey, listen, the Christmas story isn't about exclusion. It's about inclusion. Jesus no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've struggled through, no matter what you've committed, Jesus wants to bring you into the family. Even with your messy, sinful history, aren't you glad? If you'll welcome him. There's a second reason you should welcome Jesus into your home this Christmas, and that's because he's... His coming wasn't natural. It was supernatural. I mean, everything about the Christmas story is supernatural, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it's such, it's just has delight and miracle written all over it. Do you like to underline in your Bible? Because if you have one with you, this would be a good time to do it. There are five times in just eight verses, the virgin birth, or more accurately, the virgin conception of Jesus is affirmed. Look at verse 18, where he says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. There's a second allusion to the virgin conception. Later on at the end of verse 20, where the angel's talking to Joseph, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then the prophecy itself from Isaiah 7, verse 23, behold, the virgin. And by the way, the word virgin is the Greek word parthenos. It literally means a woman who's never had sexual relations, ever. That's what it means. And verse 25, it says, but knew her not until she'd given birth. Here again, all of these are allusions to the virgin conception of Jesus. But there's actually one more. We've already got the, the text up here. But before I get to that, uh, in verse 16, there is this, in this, way back in verse 16, you back up the train just a little bit here. You have this list of so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, and you go all the way down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom... Jesus was born. That, you, can under, you can underline that of whom. That's a, that's, a feminine, that's, a, that's a feminine relative singular pronoun. All that means is that Jesus came from Mary and Mary only. It excludes Joseph from the virgin conception. On the other hand, women don't beget children, right? We got our science down here, don't we? So who begot Jesus? You've been staring at it because we put it up there a little early. Here it is again. The Holy Spirit did. You see it, you hear it again. That which is conceived, and the word conceived literally means to be begot or begotten, in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you want another reference, you can write down Luke 1.35, because that's where, that's where the angel says, Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Almighty will overshadow you, and that which is born in you will be called the Son of the Highest. And you want me to scientifically explain how that happened? Forget it. It's a miracle. Christianity sees the virgin birth or the virgin conception as central to the faith. And so that begs the question, why? Why is, why is the virgin conception of Jesus so central to our faith? Because there are many, and I mean many, out there who would say, you can believe in Jesus, you can believe in the Bible, and you don't have to believe in the virgin birth to be saved. And we say, no, it's a pillar of the faith. There are three pillars that the house of God holds up under. One is the incarnation of Christ, that's what we're talking about here, the crucifixion of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. You got to get these three right. Let me give you three reasons, three supernatural reasons the virgin birth is central to your faith. Here's the first, because at the virgin birth, God became man as prophesied. You saw that in verse 22. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. By the way, the word fulfill is a really cool word. That's the first of 12 times Matthew uses the word fulfill. He uses it repeatedly. And the word uh, carries the idea of a receptacle or a vessel that's empty, waiting to be filled. And 700 years earlier, Isaiah said it, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name... Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was prophesied. Martin Luther wrote, as man alone, Jesus could not save us. As God alone, Jesus would not save us. Incarnate, he would, he could, and he did. Amen? That's what Luther said. He was right. Because at the virgin birth, God became man. Became God-man. You can't, you, can't, you can't kill God. Okay? Because God is a spirit. He had to become a man. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to the second one. Second supernatural reason. Because the virgin birth allowed for God to be propitiated. That's a big word. Almost none of us use it. It's actually used a number of times in the New Testament. It's a good word. The word means, it's very, it's kind of, it's very elastic. It, it means um, to be appeased. It means to be um, expiated. It means to be uh, atoned for. It means to be satisfied. And we say that when Jesus died on the cross, what he did was he absorbed the wrath of God. And thus propitiated, satisfied the Father and all of his demands upon us. And it would please the Father. Now listen carefully. Only a perfect life could take on sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? And that, now listen carefully, that could not happen unless God took on a body. Because you can't kill God. 
God is spirit, right? That's what Jesus himself said, right? God doesn't have flesh and blood unless he takes on flesh and blood, which is exactly what he did. Thank you very much. Amen? And here's how the writer of Hebrews put it. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you, Father God, have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Have you ever read that? Cool verse. Thus the virgin conception of Jesus made it possible for Jesus to die and the Father to be propitiated, satisfied, appeased. A third supernatural reason the virgin birth is central to your faith is because the virgin birth produced a perfect life with power. Now, the wages of sin is what? Is death. Why do people die? Because they're sinners. Everybody dies, right? Sin, listen to this, sin has a power all of its own. It will eventually kill you. Sorry. If you haven't seen it by now, by taking others out, it'll eventually happen to you and me. I know some of you are thinking, you first, but whatever. (laughs) Just the other day, here's a gal in our church, godly woman, loves Jesus. Her name is Jean. Some of you, many of you know her. Jean Johnston. She's having some physical issues. Went to the doctor, found out she has a brain tumor, middle of the brain, inoperable. It will take her out. Now, they're going to deal with it best they know how. But I wish you could have all been there when my wife and I showed up in that home with her and her husband, Ron. She said, she said look, one way or another, I'm dying. I'm not worried about it. I'm going to heaven. I mean, and she said it just like that. The delight was just jumping out of her. Now, there were tears. But her confidence in the gospel was so powerful. It was just, it was palpable. You could feel it. And listen, cancer is only one of a million ways this evil-infused world uses to kill us. And in the end, despite all the efforts that we have to avoid it, (laughs) it's going to kill you. We all die, whether from age-old illnesses or old age itself, because we're all sinners. But here's the point. Listen carefully. Jesus never sinned, right? He never sinned. Therefore, it was incapable. He was incapable of dying. The writer of Hebrews, mark it down, Hebrews 7, 16 says that Jesus possessed the power, watch it, of an indestructible life. You couldn't kill Jesus even with flesh and blood because he was perfect. And the only thing that can kill a person is sin. That's why you and I die. And this is why Jesus said these epic words. Look at him. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. Yet, By taking on our sin, when he went to the cross, 
That made it possible for him to die, and die he did, only to exude his power and rise again. Amen? These are supernatural reasons why the virgin birth is so central to our faith. One more. One more reason you ought to welcome Jesus into your home. That's because he came not for the Christmas tree, but the family tree. Now, don't get, don't get squirrely on me here. Don't think, oh, man, there he goes going prude on me. Oh, my goodness, he's going he's, he's, he's gonna to be a killjoy and tell us about all the evil things about Christmas. No, that's coming later. I'm kidding. That's not going to happen. <laughs> I love Christmas. I love the lights. I love the decorating. I even love the tree. I love the whole nine yards. I really do. But let's be honest, that's not what this is all about, amen? It is about family. We'll, we'll, we'll admit that. We'll grant you that. It's about a family tree. Jesus is, is mentioned in the preceding text. And poor Joseph, this is about the only airtime he gets. He's got a pregnant wife. He had nothing to do with it. He's incredulous. He's, he's brokenhearted. And as we've already mentioned in verse 20, he's considering his mind is churning. That's when the angel appears to him and tells him what to do. And the fact, the fact that he had to divorce Mary tells us the binding power of an engagement in Bible times. The fact that he would do it privately tells us the binding power of endearment in any time, right? The love of two people. And there's that reputation that they would have to endure Mary's pregnancy somehow would get out there. We don't, we're not told how, but we, but we are told it did get out there. Maybe they saw the baby bump before they actually were officially married. Because later when Jesus was older, 30, 31 years old, he's debating with his detractors. And, you know, as is often the case, when you're losing a fight with Jesus, you just attack his character. That's what they always did, Right? They, they were losing the argument, and they said, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What's the implication? What's the implication? The implication was that Jesus was born of sexual immorality. So that the word on the street was there, been there. You got to love Jesus' reply. You're from your father, the devil. Boom, shakalaka. You think you got family problems? You think, you think I got family problems? Yeah, I'll take mine over yours. Back to Joseph. In this dream, the angel gives to Joseph perhaps the most concise purpose statement found anywhere in the New Testament for Jesus' coming. When he says in verse 21 that Mary will bear a son... And you're going to call his name, say it, Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. That's what his name means. For, as I translated it when I read it earlier, literally because he will what? Save his people from their sins. His name fits his claim. Why did Jesus come? To save his people from sins. Their sins. Why did Jesus come? To save you from your sins. He didn't come to save you from your bad reputation. 
He didn't come to save you from your ugly past. He didn't come to save you from your financial difficulties. He didn't come to save you from your health problems. He came to save you from your sins. And that's enough to worship him, amen? God doesn't sweep your past under the rug. He sweeps your sins under his blood by the virtues of his son. As a child, I remember I loved putting the decorating together and the Christmas trees and and I remember the lights. Some of you remember when you had, if you had one bad bulb, you know, the whole thing didn't work. And if you had two bad bulbs, it was a worthless thing, you know. The bad bulbs kept the lights from shining. But the Christmas story turns all that on its head. It's just the opposite. The bad bulbs, Jesus lights himself and then puts you up on his family tree. That's what he does. And you might be that person because of your past, because of your sins, because of those things which have separated you from God, and you're over here standing off of here, you feel so unworthy because you are unworthy, no one wants to talk to you, no one would care for you, and God comes in the person of Jesus, he embraces you, and he says, welcome home, and brings you in. If you'll welcome him. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world did not know him. He came to his own people and his own people would not receive him. But as many as received him, welcomed him. To them gave he the right, the authority, the power to become the children of God. Born not of blood, not because you come through some bloodline, nor by the will of the flesh, not because you've done good things, nor by the will of man because your mommy and your daddy wanted you to be saved, but of God. God saves. And he does it through his son to those who welcome him him, Jesus, will welcome home. You want to come home? Then come to Jesus. And some of you need to come today. You've prayed prayers, you've joined churches, you've been baptized, but you're not saved. And you know it. I had a young woman in my office just the other day God was doing a work in her heart and life through a series of circumstances and very humbly, very repentantly acknowledged she'd prayed the prayer but then acknowledged that it had no impact on her life. And right there in my office, she humbled her heart in tears. She repented of her sin and she placed her faith in Jesus. And in her spirit, he said, Welcome home. If that's what you desire, that's what you can have. Jesus will welcome you if you'll welcome him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of Emmanuel, your son, God with us.
thank you for these great truths. Thank you for this great narrative. And Lord, I pray for those who are in this room and their thoughts are more on the Christmas tree and not your family tree that you want to place them upon if they would place their faith in Jesus. If that's you, dear friend, you would say, I'm like the woman you just talked about. I, it's not real, never really has been in my life. Would you just acknowledge that right now? It'll take some humility on your part. Humble your heart. Repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he he won't leave you in the corner. He'll embrace you and he'll say, welcome home, child. Do so. For those of you who do know Jesus, worship him today as Emmanuel, God with us. And God, as we come to this Lord's table and conclude our time here, may you exalt yourself as we look at these symbolic elements. The bread being a depiction of the virgin conception of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus who never sinned. And may we contemplate that life against our own. And then thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that was acceptable in your sight and one that we welcome as well. In Jesus' name, amen.